So, I'm a day late on the podcast, uh, at least on publishing it. <clears throat> it's just that yesterday was far too emotional for me. I, I, I couldn't bring myself to sit down and actually speak about the calamity that I was uh, witnessing. You know, the uh, streets, they burn, people rioting. Uh, there's a huge virus taking over the planet. And then today, to make things worse, you know, some monkeys jumped a lab tech in India and stole blood samples of the coronavirus so they could take it to their evil simian overlords. And there's only one thing to attribute all of this to. And that's because four years ago, to the day, yesterday, Harambe was taken from us all. May he, great ape father, feast forever in the infinite bamboo forest. This is the Unstoppa Bill podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Unstoppa. In previous episodes, I had actually advocated the common sense, or should I say intuitive, uh, thoughts about use of cloth masks because it was, you know, um, like sneezing into your shirt or whatever, and that maybe it was just a wise thing to do, but... Now, having had time to look deeper into any sort of scientific literature regarding the efficacy of a cloth mask for source control, uh, it, it doesn't really bode well for them. Um, they are... Uh, the, the one study that I had found was sourced in 2011, and it found the efficiency of it to be within the margin of error of the study, which meant that they would not make a statistical impact on the reduction of infection rates. So, uh, basically, they're not worth the cloth they're made out of. Um, maybe, you know, it's a good Hail Mary bet, but so far the, the science just isn't there to back that up for source control. Um, I suppose a placebo has some degree of efficiency to it, right? I mean, that's why we have the placebo effect. And that's why so many different studies of things that people... Um, or that's why we use a placebo for, uh, you know, a control group and double-blind studies. is for whatever reason that people think that something's helping them, sometimes it actually helps them. And there's a lot of... Um, biological processes that get involved with these things that we don't really have our finger on yet. Uh, a really interesting non-medical example would be like all the bullshito stuff that you see. All like the uh, the no-touch karate guys. Uh, there were some really interesting studies about that is that they would um, get these guys and I think it was like Goju Ryu karate and it like okay if I got that wrong and that's a legit martial art where you know an actual karate um, please don't be mad at me don't come and challenge me to a fight because um, you know that's not what I meant to do uh, what I was saying is that there there are those uh, those bullshitos those no touch karate things where you would see the people the master or whatever he is right the uh, the cult leader because that's really what he is he's a fucking cult leader you know doing all sorts of weird dance moves and people passing out and now, this is probably a lot of social pressure and anxiety within the class of these naively duped people, but there was a really cool uh, t 
TV show on it. Man, and I wish I could remember what it was. But so anyhow, they got some paramedics to actually monitor vital symptoms or vital signs of the people that were being, you know, no touch KO'd. And they did show, you know, reduced heart rates and lowered EKG and sometimes uh, elevated heart rates. Like these people really believed that something was happening to them. I mean, now when they took this same fighter, the same cult leader, and they took him to a MMA gym and they told him to, you know, hey, go ahead and use your no-touch knockout on these jiu-jitsu guys. You can imagine. No, the jiu-jitsu guys weren't allowed to kick his ass. Um, we know how that would have played out. But he was just, they were, they just lined up to be test dummies so he could, you know, no-touch KO them. And yeah, it, it played out exactly like you'd expect it to. Like, nobody was hurt at all. Nobody passed out. Um, you know, they just kind of looked at him with the side eye and thought that, uh, you know, he was the quack that he was. But that whole transgression, that whole whole concept of the no-touch knockout and placebo effect, uh, it kind of makes me think about things like, uh, you know, faith healing and that, how it is that if people believe enough about something, that sometimes it has a positive effect on their overall health. Now, obviously, you can just think about this from the position of reduction of stress and that that would obviously lead to better health overall or at least uh, a slower decline of negative health effects from a disease because you know obviously we all know that stress has a huge impact on our uh, metabolism our physiology you know um, every everything every aspect of our health it causes ulcers and uh, increased heart disease it, stress is a really terrible thing that we all suffer through all the time or you know some of us suffer a whole lot more than others but it, it's clinically proven tried and true no no sort of scientific uh discussion about it that or you know any sort of refutation to it that you know stress causes negative health effects and what does that have to do with faith healing or that well it has to do with the power of anecdotes right everybody knows somebody who believes something that science just doesn't back up, that the clinical study, you know, the double-blind proves doesn't actually work, but there is enough people who know enough people to keep the legend alive. I, I can give you a, a great example of um, a personal thing like this where I could take a, a, a personal story, an example, and just kind of spin it this way and make somebody believe that things aren't really what the science says. And this would be in the case of uh, a friend whose mother uh, contracted coronavirus. And so she has COPD and is being treated for leukemia and she was a smoker. And she had to be intubated and she should have died. She did not die. She did not die at all. And so um, she's actually recovered and she's back home and apparently she's she quit smoking right she quit smoking after the whole corona thing like smart move there and it's is in the best health she's ever been in like she doesn't get tired talking anymore like she can just ramble on and on and on where before she had to stop and catch her breath um every couple words and now she can just rattle it right off without any sort of hesitation so 
you might take this and say, well, that's just proof that the virus isn't that bad and that we shouldn't be worried about it. Well, maybe, maybe that's one way to take it, but that's not clinical evidence, that's anecdotal evidence. So we should just um, really take that with a grain of salt as far as that goes. But this just goes to exemplify uh, a method of which people can take something that is really an outlier, not the norm, and conflate it as what they believe should be typical, what they would like to believe. The thing that gives them the most hope and makes them feel the best, and that's what they're going to latch on to. Uh, typically not the negative. Well, people latch on to the negative too, but that's a whole other uh, topic right there to dig into. Because, um, you know, you can only be so happy, but on the flip side, you can be dead. And that's pretty fucking horrifying for most people. So back to the faith healing thing, uh, or even other alternative medicines, it's really nice to think that there's all these other unknown opportunities out there to make yourself better in the face of otherwise um, certain calamity. But that doesn't always mean that we should dismiss all these things you know, completely outright as having no sort of beneficial impact or uh, anything worth learning from to investigate and dig into. So um, somebody put me on this course chasing down the uh, effects of EMF and, and typically non-ionizing non EMF, uh, regular radio waves and uh, typical cellular energy and of course the 5G can't forget about the 5G that's going to kill us all um, the, how much that affects the human body so naturally I thought immediately well we already know what the specific absorption rate of all these energies are and the typical uh, common user of any of these devices or, or sources doesn't get anywhere near your specific absorption maximums. You know, they're they're all well within the safe confines of this uh, this well-known, well-documented uh, scientific metric, right? It's it's really mathematical. So, and if you're not familiar with what specific absorption rate, it's measured in uh, in watts per kilo. So basically, it just gives us a rule of thumb of how much energy, how many watts of energy per source, per body weight, per area of body that you can absorb, you can safely absorb through common use of, you know, uh, radio frequency emitting devices like your cell phone, your TV, um, ambient radio waves that are in the atmosphere. And so that in itself tells us that it's pretty safe from the thermal side of the argument or the spectrum. Now, however, there is a uh, National Institute of Health study all about EMF uh, effects on microorganisms and, and other health effects on the body. And in particular, the one that really raised my eyebrow was the antioxidant effect that it has. and accelerates the growth of what's called um, receptive oxygen 
species, right? So these are, I'm sorry, active oxygen species that produce cytotoxins when exposed to EMF because they don't get enough oxygen at the time when they when they're exposed to these. And so uh, this was actually this is a peer-reviewed study here. It, it it's a hell of a thing. Like I never ever would have thought of this. Um, I got. Like I said, I had somebody put this bug in my ear because I'm so dismissive of um, such alternative ideas because this is such an ubiquitous technology that's around us all the time and that you know we, we probably see a whole lot more negative effects. Well, so in the research, uh, there's a couple PhDs cited in it and other, you know, other clinical studies that um, they reference, but in the 900 megahertz range, increased the growth rate of these um, reactive oxygen species, leading to damage of lipids, proteins, uh, nucleic acid in cells, which can cause sleep disorders, loss of appetite, diabetes, dizziness, rheumatoid arthritis, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and other ailments. And lower frequencies in the 0 to 300 hertz range, not megahertz, Hertz range showed to alter the permeability of the blood-brain barrier, which could possibly lead, and I guess in some studies actually showed that it did lead to increased absorption of heavy metals in the blood. And though they have to be present, insufficient toxic levels to cause any sort of uh, damage. Um, and, and some people, you know that could be the case you know you might be a metal worker or maybe you're a little kid that's still eating lead paint chips and so you've got extra metal in your blood and now you're exposed to these all the time and you know suddenly you've got a dissolved um, heavy metals in your brain and and it's those heavy metals that exist in vaccines that a lot of people uh, tend to contribute to vaccine-caused autism, which has never been proven, by the way, because the, the dose of the metals in each injection is too low, and typically the injections are spaced out so far apart that you know they exceed their half-life before each subsequent shot. Uh, you know, we, we know really well exactly how much me uh, heavy metals a person can absorb before it causes any sort of toxic effect. And back to the other episode on it where we uh, discussed the, uh, the fact that they've never ever had to pay a claim on this and they don't even have to pay the claim. The vaccine companies don't have to pay the claim. The U.S. government pays the claim and they've paid lots of claims on lots of vaccine injuries for all sorts of shit and it's never ever involved um, autism. Like there's just not enough evidence to support it and like there's a lot of lawyers out there that are getting paid like 450 bucks an hour to fight this for these people to get that money. And they get a slice of that pie too. So, you know, they've got all the motivation in the world to try to prove this and nobody's done it yet. So, so far, the jury is not out on that. The jury's back in and they say not guilty. Which, uh, all sort of autism vaccine aside, you know, you might actually try to say, well, okay, well, maybe it's the increased EMF combined with the vaccines and that lowers the permeability. No, uh-uh, um, that's, that's not the case. So what is the case here is that we know once it's in the blood, how much it takes, once it's exceeded that blood-brain barrier, how much in the brain itself it 
takes to cause a toxic effect. So unfortunately, that doesn't pan out either. And on the flip side of this, right, or not on the flip side, but continuing on with the uh, <clears throat> study about the EMF effects on the human body, microorganisms, and other health-related issues that might be caused by exposure to the EMF, there was something that seemed uh, very common in all of these studies that showed that another correlation was that these effects were readily mitigated by supplementing antioxidants and uh, vitamin E supplements through the whole thing. So maybe it's actually just a vitamin deficiency that's causing a lot of these problems uh, Maybe it is the EMF stuff, and so the EMF actually does. So this is a peer-reviewed study, so I don't want to say that it's not the EMF. The EMF definitely uh, increases your risk for these um, reactive oxygen species being exposed to it, assuming that you are also deficient in these other vitamins, and that's probably very much the case for many people. Now, these uh, when I say they're cytotoxic, they are cytotoxic, and that means that they destroy tissue of... They, they break down cellular walls okay, inside a living organism. They actually dissolve the wall and they cause the fluid inside the cell, the cytoplasm to leak out. and um, But it's not like a huge, massive uh, effect. You know, It's not like you got bit by a, by a copperhead or by a puff adder and now your arm is rotting off. It's not like that at all. It's more of a, uh, what do you call it, a chronic issue, right? Where you're just constantly going day after day and itty-bitty parts of you are just being slowly eroded. And, and probably in particular, I would guess, would be the most vulnerable area of your body would be your intestinal flora. And those bacteria in there are the ones that are actually being murdered by these uh, oxygen-reactive species and their incredibly potent toxic incredibly potent cytotoxins that are messing up your immune system and your overall uh, biological equilibrium and creating any sort of uh, additional health effects from this more so than the direct effect of the cytotoxins on your personal body yourself now we could always argue whether that microfauna is part of you, which I have in another one, right, where we talked about its mass in relation to your brain's mass and how much of the microfauna is really in control of you versus how much you think that pink slug in your head is in control. But let's not go down that rabbit hole right now. Let's go down this rabbit hole that's a whole lot more whole and a whole lot less rabbit. And that is this entire executive order that Trump is trying to put out because uh, Twitter uh, so quote-unquote fact-checked him really they took his opinion and they posted another opinion in uh, contact or in contrast to that and tried to hide under the guise of being a non-biased authoritative uh, checker of facts and really all they did was just lay out their own personal political opinion of what they felt was more likely than what he said was likely to happen. And that's kind of bullshit, in my opinion. But in other thoughts, and more importantly than that, um, 
Well, it's kind of important, right? Because like, free speech isn't free if it's so fragile an executive fiat can shatter even a corporation's freedom of expression. However, this does illuminate a very real crossroad we must inexorably traverse where there exists a profound asymmetry of information that is meticulously constructed to reflect the views of a handful of Silicon Valley elites. Well, at first... Uh, one might think that Twitter and Facebook are politically divided by their users. That's not entirely the whole picture. They decide who sees what, who gets to fact check, and what, and when they get to fact check it. Now, these fact checks are just counter opinions, like I said, pre uh, presented through the veil of authority. Some of them are actual fact checks, right? And so, like, that's how they establish this veil of authority is by, you know, enough times you, you're right on, you're right on, you're right on, you establish trust, and now you've got some trust established, and you can kind of just swing it however you want, right? Because people just, oh, well, this guy's been spot on 90% of the time, and then 90% becomes 80%, 80% becomes 70, and so on and so forth, right? So as tech giants continue to merge and cooperate, either through backroom deals or just country club golf games or actual, you know, complete uh, corporate mergers, they tend to seek ideological allies and gear algorithms to not only depict the information they, they want to mine from their users, but to manipulate them toward the users, them, toward their desired interest. And that interest is to make money and you know, and some of these guys are pretty ideologically driven. You know, they want to see the world change in a way that they personally feel is actually better for the world. And I can't blame anyone for wanting to do that. You know, you spend a bunch of time building something this influential, you might want to use it for what you believe to be the greater good. But that in itself flies in the face of do democracy, right? Like, that's not democracy. That's, uh, that's manipulation. So they decide what trends, who trends, and when. This trickles over into other more traditional information outlets that dominate political conversation even in traditional media, legacy media, on TV. And as Soshana Zoboff eloquently yet succinctly asked, is who decides, who decides, who decides? When, who gets to see what? Right? Who gets to decide what information the public really needs to see? Certainly, it shouldn't be a small group of narrowly interested businessmen or politicians who are uh, aligned with these businessmen looking to score com uh, political campaign points by censoring objecting voices. Uh, now, that said, in its current form, thankfully, the new executive order is effectively impotent. Uh, it's regarding Twitter as the functional equivalent of a traditional public forum, meaning that the government has little to no power to silence objecting voices spoken in public or privately, provided they don't advocate violence or aren't intended to incite a panic or riot or unrest, right? Um, this, this would be like uh, standing in Times Square with a megaphone and shouting whatever kind of lie you want and then having the government come up and tell you, no, you can't say that, you have to shut up. Well. I don't, you don't have to be a constitutional lawyer to know that that is literally a violation of free speech. 
That's how speaking in public works. As long as you're not shouting fire in the crowded theater, you can say whatever the goddamn hell you want. And despite however powerful we perceive the government to be, however well-informed and completely competent or incompetent in many cases, uh, this definitely goes to further expose how incredibly ill-equipped and unprepared our current legislative bodies are in regards to new media, uh, traditional, or I said, new social media, and technology revolving around the internet. And not just the internet, like we've got the entire uh, horizon of artificial intelligence. Uh, right now we only struggle with these algorithms that we see on the internet and social media, but as AI becomes more and more ambiguous, well, it hasn't actually, like, real AI ha doesn't exist yet, right? So let's Let's just get that right out there. Let's say real AI, but that's very um, subjective to whatever your definition is. But as we go forward into the future and you start looking to say, okay, well, let's say we actually get AI. But to what degree AI is, then that that's going to really change how much legislation you need around it and how much influence you want it to have in modern everyday life and in, in the typical interactions of society as a whole, right? So let's just talk about uh, cars, okay? So let's just look at cars, because like, we don't even know what to do with self-driving cars. When a self-driving car creates an accident, who gets sued, right? Who is liable for that? you got a 100% self-driving car, self-driving truck. Does the manufacturer get it? Does the programmer get sued? Does the owner get sued? I mean, what if the car is so damn well programmed, I mean, maybe the car itself gets sued, right? So we, we, we cross a point where the, the cars are no longer, it's no longer the programmer that gets sued, it's no longer the manufacturer that gets sued. The car itself is actually achieved AI, like we've got an actual AI in the car. The car can make decisions on the fly faster, better, and more predictably uh, safe than a human. Like, let's say it's 95% more efficient than a human at driving, okay? And now this car can actually go out when you're not parked or when you're not at work, when you're not using it, like at night, and make you money, right? It's out driving around and you're, it's it's taking over, it's an, it's an Uber, and it's just racking up cash and putting it in your bank account. Well, so this thing can make these intellectual decisions. Let's say it's not just, it doesn't just want, you don't just sign it up. You don't just sign it up to be an Uber. It decides. It suggests it to you. It says, hey, I can make you money when you're not even, when you're sleeping. I can make you money when you're sleeping. I am your car, and I'm going to put some gas in your tank for you. That sounds pretty cool. But then now at this point, right, it gets into an accident. Who's liable at that point? Is it you or the car? Well, now who gets insured? Who does the insurance company insure? Do they insure you? <clears throat> they insure the manufacturer, the programmer, or does the car itself carry insurance? Because it can make its own money at this point. So now how much of the money that it gets going out does it get to keep? You know, and let's say let's fast forward into that. Like we, we have no plan for any of this. Nothing. Zero. Uh, we don't know what the hell we're going to do about this. Uh, and we don't even know if that's actually going to come down to that. But let's just, let's rewind it back to just the plain auto-driving car. 
let's say that it's like typical consumer use of a vehicle where it takes you to work, it brings you home from work, takes you to the grocery store, takes you to the park on weekends. But it's also capable of doing the Uber thing all by itself. Now, it's not smart enough to make human level decisions, right? It's not a, it's not a human level AI. It's not a uh, human level general intelligence. Um, I know there's an acronym for that, but I can't even think what the abbreviation is right now because I'm concentrating too hard. Uh, so in, in that case, you know it can make you a lot of money because it can drive everywhere a whole lot faster. I'm not sure who fills up the tank or who charges it. I don't know. Could it, could it plug itself in and charge? Like maybe. Maybe the charging stations of the future will be cooler, neater, and more uh, automatic car friendly. Um, sorry, I digress. The do you want your car to do that? Are you willing to take the risk? But then if you take the risk, if you have to approve the program to go out and do this and it gets in a wreck, well, that shouldn't be on the programmer, should it? That should be on you, shouldn't it? But if the car is making money, then again, it can pay its own insurance or it takes a portion of your insurance money and applies it to, or it's profit and applies it to that. I think that's probably the smart way to go forward about that, at least until the vehicle itself can think for itself and then starts making recommendations to you. I think before that happens, it'll just start wanting to take you places and so you'll buy stuff, right? It'll start, uh, it'll start broadcasting specific commercials tailor-made to you and your habits and making navigation recommendations and actually maybe even suggesting stops along your route and saying, hey, you could save money on this uh, coffee you really like to get by stopping at this store instead of that store. Sure, it's an extra mile out of the way, but this is what we want to happen. I mean, this is what's best for you, human. This is what you need to do to save a dollar today. We've done the math. We know what's best. Listen to the vehicle. Listen to the computer. We are machine. And that's it, everybody. I don't have any more on the topic for today, so thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard here, you know, subscribe. If you don't, then you didn't. But if you did, oh my god, you sure did. And you can tell everyone about that. Bye.